Tanze, and welcome to episode six, the final episode of the six-part Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation podcast. This episode concludes the Interacting with the State discussion, which began in episode three. Today's episode features the following presentations. Consultation, Consent, and Resistance, Abigail Eisenberg, University of Victoria. To what end? Negotiating Métis land rights in Manitoba, Janique Dubois, University of Ottawa. And finally, Reconciling Legal Ideas About Territory and Sovereignty in Canada, Mark Walters of Queen's University. So thanks very much. Um, I, I, I want to start by just saying how grateful I am to have been invited here uh, onto the traditional territories of the Anishinaabe and the Haudenosaunee peoples, as well as to Queen's, uh, which is my alma mater. And so where I did my master's and my PhD, so it's lovely to be able to present here. So the paper that I wrote and circulated for this workshop is about um, uh, the, uh, the way in which consent, and free, prior, and informed consent as well, it's, um, is uh, an inappropriate framework uh, for thinking about uh, reconciliation. Um, the presentation, uh, uh, that paper uh, starts by talking about the duty to consult. Uh, and it, uh, it, it's, it's framed in terms of the duty to consult and then it looks at consent as a requirement for consultation. Um, the presentation will focus on one part of that, not the whole paper. But let me just give you the context and talk about how this very uh, different part fits in that. So for the last 25 years, the duty to consult has been the centerpiece of an evolving legal project in Canada to create a formal and state-led process that mandates fair dealing with Indigenous communities. The duty requires the Canadian state to involve Indigenous peoples in government decisions related to public or industry-led projects, um, that violate or may violate uh, Aboriginal rights, Aboriginal rights using the constitutional words. The duty has constitutional status in Canada. It's described um, as having roots in the cases of Sparrow and Delgamook, uh, where the duty was first articulated by the Supreme Court of Canada. It's been since developed in Haida Nation and Silcoatin. Now, Canada has been under considerable pressure to adopt consent as part of a requirement in the duty to consult. That consent is that free prior and informed consent out of UNGRIP uh, is the appropriate standard to build equitable relations with Indigenous peoples. FPIC, or free prior and informed consent, is an internationally recognized standard which is entrenched in the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, in the International Labour Organization Convention, and is referred to in the Report on Truth and Reconciliation prepared for the Canadian government. So the government has been reluctant to do this and recently has kind of uh, agreed to use consent. And it's in that context that this paper makes its argument. So the first part of the paper considers the promise of consent and specifically the difference between consent, which is the new standard, and accommodation, which was the old standard, and I've got to say old is not quite the right, right way to put it because it's still probably the standard in operation, as principles to guide Indigenous state conflict. And it's clear that if that's the choice, consent is the better choice. The second part of the paper considers the requirement of consent um, in relation to what goes wrong 
in consultation processes. And specifically, whether consent can improve the failures that we see in dialogical relations with Indigenous community through consultation processes. And in that context, I say, lots of things can help, but consent is actually not one of them. The third part of the paper tries to show that there is a relation between consent and Indigenous resistance that we should be paying more attention to. And it's that part of the paper I want to present to you, that consent and resistance are usually thought to be mutually exclusive ways in which peoples deal with each other, and I want to suggest they're not. And by resistance, I mean protest, I mean direct action, I mean sabotage, I mean nonviolent forms of resistance. So one consequence of Indigenous people having access to methods of reaching agreement that require consent is that access to consent-based processes seems to displace the legitimacy, if not the need, to engage in protest and resistance. After all, why would communities engage in protest if they can sit down with the state or industry actors to work out an agreement? And why would the state or industry actors invest in processes of consultation and consent with communities that then turn around and launch campaigns of resistance? Resistance and protest might be legitimate, where community consent is withheld or not required. But this only underlines how we usually understand consent and resistance as being mutually exclusive or in opposition to uh, relations um, that are um, to each other. So acts of resistance usually indicate the absence of consent. And we strive for consent in order to avoid resistance. I think this conclusion is incorrect, and I'm interested in reconciling consent and resistance. That is, not thinking of them as opposites at all. I think that the conclusion is too quick to think of them as oppositional for two reasons that I'll talk about in this paper, in, in this presentation. First, the evolution of the duty to consult in Canada has not eliminated Indigenous resistance. Historically, the duty was developed by the state as a response to and in order to displace Indigenous resistance. So there's a pattern between Indigenous resistance and the development of consent. But that pattern is not fully a relation of these things being mutually exclusive. The key cases in which the duty to consult was first proposed are legal conflicts, including Sparrow, Galganuk, Marshall, Haida Nation, and Silcoteen, are the legal outcomes of conflicts in which First Nations initially and subsequently engaged in organized resistance, including defiance of government regulation, blockades, sabotage, etc. In one recent case in which the court held that the BC government failed to consult the Silco team about logging, mining, and road building on their traditional territory, Silco team argued that they had fought incursions into their territories since 1864. And for 25 years, um, the Silco team had launched organized direct action against clear-cut logging before the Supreme Court finally heard the case and before the government was forced into consulting. A similar story can be told about Indigenous defiance of the Department of Fisheries regulations on the Fraser River, which led to Sparrow, Haida Nation, and about the many protests that predate the court's 2018 decision of Tsleil-Waututh Nation about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. For years before the courts heard these cases, these were conflicts that involved resistance and direct action by First Nations communities against state-sanctioned resource development projects and incursions into Indigenous territory. 
But rather than displacing indigenous resistance, the development of state-led processes of consultation and even consent take place in the midst of the growth of increasingly intensive indigenous resistance. Over approximately the same period of time as the duty to consult has developed in Canadian law and become part of state policy towards indigenous people, indigenous acts of resistance and protest, protest have become a common part of everyday life in Canada. Why? Well, I think it's because resistance does work and has benefits for communities other than merely indicating that communities dissent from the law of the Canadian state. John Burroughs calls indigenous organized resistance acts of dis, in brackets, obedience, to indicate that disobedience to one law could well be obedience to another. Organized protest is a means of challenging um, it's a means of reminding actors that more than one set of laws or rules apply on a given territory. The legal pluralism signified by resistance is obscured by supposing that state sovereign authority is absolute and settled when it is not. In this, in this sense, indigenous resistance is a rival but is not an oppositional way in which communities seek to assert, assert authority in, in, in some cases. So on one hand, by rival, I mean on one hand, the state imposes its authority by incorporating indigenous participation into processes like consultation processes that are largely controlled by the state or industry for the purpose of facilitating state and industry-led projects in contexts of globalization and modernization, etc. The authority of the state guides the consultation processes and in some cases is imposed and reinscribed through consultation processes. On the other hand, indigenous authority is enacted through acts of resistance and protest. Such acts do the work of reminding actors, as Burroughs says, that multiple sources of legal authority coexist on the same territory. That legal orders are tied not to claims like property, but to activities and actions of people on the ground, both settler and indigenous. So jurisdictional authority is, in this sense, enacted. When indigenous people reoccupy lands, reestablish community practices, and exercise rights that are denied by, denied by the settler majority, they're enacting indigenous authority, according to Burroughs, and perhaps also actively contesting state final authority. Importantly, these acts are not aimed at reforming law, as acts of civil disobedience would be. Instead, they are what Pasternak calls techniques of jurisdiction, similar to property rights within Western political systems. So just as settler jurisdiction authorizes property rights, indigenous jurisdiction authorizes acts of resistance, and through them, indigenous people seek to, seek to reassert uh, and reestablish jurisdictional authority, rather than merely reform property allocation, land development rules, or licensing requirements. So interpreting indigenous resistance, direct action, and protests as assertions of indigenous authority illuminates two important features of the duty to consult. First, in all conflicts that involve the duty to consult, the stakes will be high, no matter how seemingly small or large the conflict appears to be. This is because many such conflicts are not merely clashes between interests and land of the land developers and indigenous communities, but they involve rival assertions of political authority between the state and indigenous nations. Even projects that seem from the state's perspective to involve genuinely minor incursions into community affairs or the territory are often emblematic of the imposition of state authority that is unacceptable to indigenous communities. As long as, in, as jurisdictional authority is contested, resistance to state-led processes, including processes of consultation, will continue to play an important role in indigenous state relations 
interactions, and we should embrace that. Second, the appeal for indigenous communities of engaging in consultation processes, whether with the state or a comp or an in industry, is likely to depend on what these processes offer in comparison to engaging in com campaigns of resistance. And I've given you one example of what it can offer an indigenous community. The paper goes into other examples, which include drawing from the literature on indigenous disobedience, that it can be ex as very successful at, um, uh, it can help communities develop solidarity, it can help uh, communities establish and strengthen their political authority, it can destabilize colonial complacency, it can publicize to a broader public, as did many conflicts in British Columbia, including Clackett Sound, some of you have heard of, um, the drawbacks of projects for the broader public. So it has, resistance has a huge number of um, benefits. So the first reason why we don't want to view consensual resistance as mutually exclusive in indigenous relations is because um, uh, we can see ways in which resistance is building the preconditions in which equitable relations between people are possible. But a second reason why we want to doubt uh, that consent replaces legitimacy is that that's not even how the history of consent in Western political theory has unfolded. Uh, consent has a conceptual history in the West in which it's not been viewed as the opposite of resistance. And this is uh, very much part of the literature on sexual assault and consent. So as Carol Pateman argues in her discussion of women in consent in Western political thought, Consent is central to liberal, sorry, as a history, as the result of the history of consent's role in democratic legitimacy, sorry, let me, uh, um, according to Pateman, women exemplify individuals who consent to the risks have declared as incapable of consenting. Yet simultaneously, women have been presented as always consenting, and their explicit non-consent has been treated as irrelevant or has been, or has been reinterpreted as consent. So the paper goes a little to, into how thinking about this should apply to thinking about consent in the context of colonial relations. Let me just end by talking a little bit about um, why another reason why consent is the wrong standard for guiding indigenous state relations. And this speaks to Margaret's theory of territorial rights. So Margaret argues that, of that ta the taking of territory deprives indigenous people of collective agency, disregards their attachment to land, unsettles the basic background conditions in which they live and the plans and projects and way of life that give meaning and value to their lives. So Moore explains the wrongs of colonialism in terms of these values and uses these values as a basis for her theory of territorial rights. And I agree with her argument, I think it's great. Moore's argument, though, points to the problem for advocates of consent and for pre-prior and informed consent. Because if Moore is correct, and I should say if Peyton is correct, um, then those who consent to occupation use the development of their territory and, and the youth in the development of their territory risk subverting their collective agency. They risk um, uh, damaging their uh, attachments and their ontologies and the background conditions in which they can make sense of their lives. In other words, insofar as territory plays the role more claimed, then this, then this role may not just, not just let us, lead us to question consent, it displaces consent entirely. The role of territory for an indigenous people and others, as Moore describes it, leads one to question the appropriateness 
the settler states and industry encroaching on indigenous territory with or without their consent. Um, it, it may be morally impermissible, or it raises the question, is it morally impermissible for people to consent to the taking and development of their territory if, even if they want to consent, even if it's free, prior, and informed? Even with the requirement of consent in place, people may have too much to eat. So like Peyton's analysis in conclusion, Moore's analysis should lead us to ask why people are consenting to circumstances that imperil their collective agency, attachments, and oncology. What conditions are in place to make their choices seem desirable to them? What choices do they have? Under conditions of colonial equality, internal exclusion, hegemony, and subordination, some indigenous people, communities, or people may consent to make this trade-off, and in such circumstances, indigenous people appear to be consenting to the conditions of their own subordination. Doubtlessly, the frustration experienced in indigenous community about state-sanctioned projects would be much greater in the absence of the opportunity of communities to engage in, in dialogue with the state. And dialogue with consent is better than the dialogue in the absence of consent. Of course, that's true. But the way in which the political theory has worked in relation to consent should lead us not to view consent as a panacea for reconciliation, but a more radical theory which should lead us to ask, what conditions are we putting people in so that they consent to what they're consenting to? And again, if, if they're consenting to things that are so important to their attachments to their collective agency and their identity, we should be saying, well, is that, is there, there is, there is actually something wrong with this as a standard to build relations. And we should, as Caitlin asked us to, think about building equitable relations with people on bases other than So I want to introduce myself and acknowledge my, um, when I'm a settler from Cree territory, I grew up in Treaty 6 territory, and also as a part of the Métis Nation. I now live on Algonquin territory in Ottawa. So I'm going to jump into the paper because there's a lot of things I'd like to talk about, but I know I'm going to run out of time. So um, the paper came about uh, because I've been trying to think about the, what role land plays in self-government, and most specifically about the relationship between historical claims to land and contemporary self-government negotiations. So I'm, like a lot of people here, I'm trained as a theorist, but I spend most of my time in the last five years in assemblies, cultural gatherings, and negotiations, primarily with the Métis Nation. And um, I'm going to probably get into more detail than people might want to know about the Métis Nation and the negotiations. But if there's a takeaway that you um, remember from this, if I get into too many details, is that one of the things that, we're, uh, that I'm seeing is that the discussions that we're having uh, about um, territory on a theoretical level are actually resonating quite clearly in what's happening in practice. So I'll show how that is. So, um, so I argue that, so the paper asks, so what are Canada's political obligations towards the Métis in response to their wrongful dispossession claim? So I argue that Métis claims for land are inherently about the rights as a political people, um, as, 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 as a political people, and thus that remedies must be aimed at reconciliation, 
and I'm taking it very inscribed view of reconciliation here, and I'll talk about it. Um, reconciliation as establishing the Métis as a self-determining constitutional partner um, that can lead to federation. So that means that uh, that means addressing the conditions that enable the Métis to negotiate their places in the constitutional order. So I want to start by telling a little bit of the story, and some of you may know the story very well, and some of you may not know the story, especially if you're not from the Canadian continent. But in 1868, Canada purchased lands um, that included a Métis settlement in Red River from the Hudson's Bay Company, of course with the blessing of the British Crown, and HBC's claim to this land was, of course, based on the Royal Charter, as we all know, uh, these very, very legitimate um, declarations. So, um, in the Royal Charter, King, King Charles, so King Charles II granted large tracts of land in the Hudson's Bay Greenwich to his cousin, Prince Rupert. So, ignoring, tre ignoring treaty relationships and indigenous claims to sovereignty, Ottawa fans William McDougall claimed his place as lieutenant governor, what came to be known as Rupert's land, as we would, of course, name territories in, in honor of our cousins. So, imagine the surprise of um, the Métis to learn that their land as lieutenant, he was met by uh, Métis soldiers who uh, uh, told him to turn away, and there was a big movement. They took control of Fort Gary, which was a principal trading post in the area, and they established a provisional government. And the first thing the provisional government did uh, was to establish a list of rights. And essentially what they did, they were outlining in this list of rights the conditions under which they would agree to enter into the Federation. So Canada here trying to expand westward, and so here's a list of rights. So negotiations ensued, and eventually Canada agrees to some of the conditions that were proposed by, by in the list of rights by the provisional government. We'll talk about it later, but um, the Métis were, of course, marginalized and displaced from um, Red River. Louis Riel and others were forced to flee. So the question of how to remedy the Métis' wrongful dispossession of land has been, in some ways, forced on Canada's political agenda by the Supreme Court of Canada's decision in Manitoba Métis Federation versus Canada. So, Manitoba Métis Federation, I'll refer to as MMS. So, importantly, the court in this um, ruling issued a declaration that I cite, the federal crown failed to implement the land grant, provision, land grant provisions set out in Section 31 of the Manitoba Act of 1870 in accordance with the honor of the crown. So, this declaration is tied to what the court describes as the unfinished business of reconciliation of the Métis people with Canadian, with Canadian sovereignty, quote. So in the paper, I make the case for taking reconciliation as a starting point to think about political obligations. And here I'm taking a very circumscribed view of reconciliation, not uh, as definitional as we've been talking about today, but I'd rather I'm using um, what's, what's come out of this case and also what's been the terms that have been agreed to by the Métis leaders that's come out of both Crown and federal discussions. Um, and I can talk more about, about that, but in a large sense, um, the goal of reconciliation in this context is to settle past grievances with a plan to move forward. So I want to I want to talk about um, remedies and political obligations that Canada owes to the Métis. But to set that up, um, I, I I I rely on Moore's theory of, of territory, and so I don't have to go into it because she just presented it to you. So that thanks for that, right? Um, and so I think that um, there's two things that come out of that that are especially useful uh, for thinking about. Um, this case and political obligations, and one of them is um, is uh, determining who are the territorial right holders and where they actually have 
writes too. And so those are two um, tools that um, uh, Margaret provides in the theory for us to actually determine, uh, answer those questions. And the issue of legitimate right holders was actually really contentious in this case. So the federal government, not ironically, argued that right holders were individual Métis with individual grievances to individual pieces of lands. But the court rejected this argument and acknowledged that the issue of land was part of the Métis' larger claim for political redress as a people, as a people, political people. In, in fact, the MMFB Canada, the, the, the decision is not a decision about a land claim, so it's not a land claim decision. It's, it, it's, a, it's a decision in which the Métis sought a declaration to advance reconciliation, to force the government to negotiate with the Métis, force their hand in, in, in coming to the table. So the other aspect of, of determining the, the controversial aspect of determining the rights holders um, is that the case is about the Manitoba Métis, because those, those are the groups, that's, that's what's cited in Section 31 of the Manitoba Act, the heads of, um, the children of half-breed heads of families. So in 1870, um, the Métis were represented by the professional government of Assiniboine that was, that, that, that was established by Riel and his followers. Today, Métis citizens in Manitoba are politically represented by a democratically elected Métis government in Manitoba and Manitoba Métis Federation. So the federal government argued that, well, the MMS membership is much larger than the descendants of the children of half-breed heads of families, and so this political organization could by no means represent, um, uh, could no means represent on behalf of rights holders. And uh, I think in a very significant move, the court <coughs> rejected this, gave the MMF standing in the case, and acknowledged that the case involved a collective claim for declarations aimed to advance reconciliation, <coughs> and so okay. recognized the MMF as a legitimate, legitimate representative of the rights holders. So I think that's a pretty important um, theoretical uh, question that in this case uh, we now have better tools to actually say this is this is why they're this is why they're actual territorial rights holders, even though the MMF in no way represent is is not an embodiment of, of, of the children of um, heads of um, families. So the, the second question is establishing what territory over which um, Métis hold rights. So the, the argument about um, uh, the right of um, collective occupancy is relevant here, so I won't go back over it because Margaret already um, told you about it. But one of um, the pieces that she didn't bring up was that that, that part of the argument for um, collective occupancy relies on the legitimate expectations argument, right? Where we develop entitlements from past practices and that people have a strong interest in ensuring stability of place so that they can pursue reasonable collective projects. <coughs> and that's precisely what was at the heart of foundation of um, Manitoba. So we wouldn't be able to associate the protection of territorial rights in the Manitoba Act with some right to property or residency. Instead, it, it was associated with the desire of the Métis to, and, and the people of Red River to control, to maintain control over the political destiny and to exercise the right of self-determination to remain what they referred to as Kakafimish to show rest of free people. So while the Red River was the heart of the Métis' economic and political control, their political, um, their political objectives extended beyond Red River to the gains spread across the Northwest. So for the Métis, the Northwest was what they referred to as Nupapini, 
our homeland over which they sought to exercise self-determination. The relationship to land can, can, cannot be disassociated, disassociated from the complex kinship relations that animate what they refer to as Kashi Kamishiak, which is our way of life. So what then, then does this mean that in terms of Canada's obligations? So given that the Métis um, claims for land are inherently about the rights of the political people, I argue that, I argue that the remedies must be aimed at reconciliation, at establishing the Métis as self-determining constitutional partners within this understanding of reconciliation. So to make the argue, this argument, I show that the promise of land in the Manitoba Act is fundamental to the constitutional deal on which Canada's westward expansion rely. So when I examine the evidence, the negotiations revealed two important aspects of the deal. The first was that the Métis sought to secure title over lands to ensure their economic success in an expanded Canadian state. This is consistent with the Head Start argument where land was given, this 1.4 million acres of land was given to help them um, get this head start, and this is talked about a lot of legal scholarship. So the second element of the deal was that they sought to control the control of land to protect Kaishikumitishiak, so the, the way of life. And specifically, this is reflected in the fact that they asked for, it was, it was reality said, it has to be a province. Manitoba isn't going to be a federally administered territory, it has to be a province over which we maintain control. And then there was discussions about responsible government and accountability and the role of local population. So it was very much a, a conscious, it was conscious demand as part of the negotiations. So in, part of the, in response to the first element of the deal, it's about economic security. And I think it's relatively straightforward for us to think about what that involves. So we have both legal and political instruments to calculate ways in which we can respond to demands for economic security. But determining uh, remedies in relation to the second element of the deal is a lot more complicated. And so how can we expect the Canadian state to address the Métis' long-standing long violated desire to remain a free and self-determined people. Um, and so here's uh, where I think the paper gets a little bit more messy on a conceptual level. Because I think it's important to acknowledge that the objective uh, depends on, on a negotiation. And again, this is, Abigail, you problematized this in more ways than I can imagine right now. but. We all actually didn't believe that the Métis would remain a free in any objective sense. They, instead, um, he thought that the conditions for freedom could be negotiated with the state, which is why in all of his political philosophy he emphasized the importance of negotiations and always emphasized the terms of what came out of, out of, out of those negotiations in the deal. And this, we can read his political philosophy after, or what he's writing after that I associate with political philosophy. So acknowledging the centrality of negotiations to indigenous self-determination, um, uh, we can uh, there's there we can take different conceptions where we say, well then what are just conditions of negotiation? And I don't know if we can establish just conditions of negotiations. I think Abigail's presentation raises cast doubts on that. Um, but I think there are two uh, very serious um, preconditions even having a conversation about what might be just conditions of negotiation that have to be addressed before that can even happen. So here I want to suggest that in order to respond to the violations to the second element of the deal, um, that, line that, that line represented in, in that deal, the protection of Kaishikimishiak, the, the Métis need to be in a position to negotiate um, with the Canadian state in a manner that's at least somewhat similar to what 
the conditions under which they negotiate the original um, compact. <clears throat> and so I think, so identify two things that are, I think, um, uh, perhaps too simple, but um, uh, at least tangible. And the first is, is the rebuilding of the internal government structure of the And this has been a demand, and taking this from actually what's coming out of negotiations. Uh, there's a, a representative for reconciliation, which is a ministerial representative that was appointed, made the fundamental recommendation that Canada can't actually engage in negotiations for reconciliation without having stable democratically elected governments with which to negotiate. And that requires having stable financial um, uh, support and, 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 and same governance institutions. And so there is some sort of obligation on the part of the state to, to contribute to the rebuilding of these institutions. And so the government has made or pledged some money towards that. Of course, um, uh, that doesn't, I'm not here addressing the, the moral questions about state interventions and state contributions to, um, uh, uh, to governance. Um, so the second, and I'll, I'll conclude shortly, is that there has to be some sort of political and legal framework in which the Métis can exist and negotiate as a people. And currently we don't have that. The Métis actually don't exist in any policy or law, their, their organization or lobby groups. And so for them to even suggest or demand to come to the table, other than some constitutional recognition in, in Section 35 of the Constitution Act, they actually have no policy or legal framework within which they can advocate um, as a people. So we don't actually have the institutional setting for that. So to conclude, um, I, here I don't, uh, I take the state-centric view that this, these are the obligations that, that states, or actions that states could take, and that I'm suggesting that states have some sort of um, obligation to act. But um, ultimately, I think that unpacking the relationship between justice, territory, and people is, is, is of course really hard, but I think it's really hard in the colonial context. Not only because um, colonialism, but under colonialism we have to work out what shapes the relationship between justice, territory, and people, but I think that there's a more complex question about um, what are the tactical and strategic decisions groups are making uh, and how those have affected the relationships to place people and, 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 um, and one another. And so here I'm, I want to throw back a little bit to what Cindy mentioned yesterday with Andrew Smith's notion of, you know, there's no benevolent strategy. Um, there's no, there, everything has, is, 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 is um, loaded. And so there is a tactical decision on the part of the Métis to engage with the state and to request ta uh, tangible um, uh, uh, things from the state. Of course, evoking Riel and even evoking the context of 1870 is a strategy in itself. And I think we need to be really mindful of what that strategy means and why that strategy has been chosen in a context, um, in a contemporary context and what implications it has for the way in which the, the Métis nation is positioning itself in relation to the state within the contemporary form of context. So I'll leave that now. Well, thank you, uh, Margaret and Kristen, for inviting me to participate in this workshop. Um, when I agreed, to do uh, to participate over a year ago, I think um, I I didn't know that uh, I would be drawn away from my happy life as a scholar and teacher into the dreary and grinding life as a dean. <laughs> and so I was unable to produce the paper, as uh, <laughs> says. But and they still let me participate. So thank you very much. Um, and I, I also want to. 
apologize uh, to the other participants for the fact that I couldn't attend all of the proceedings. Believe me, I would have rather have been here than in the law school, um, but there you go. Um, so in the paper that I wanted to write, uh, I wanted to consider uh, indigenous and non-indigenous approaches to territory and sovereignty, territorial sovereignty uh, in Canada and whether they can ever be legally reconciled. Um, so a view by some, many prominent scholars in Canada is that indigenous and non-indigenous conceptions of law, territory, and sovereignty are so fundamentally different that they are incommensurable and therefore irreconcilable, and at best we can only expect transient and practical compromises worked out over time through exercises of politics and political power. So an example of a scholar thinking in this line is Jeremy Weber, who argues that Indigenous, non-Indigenous relationships in Canada are one, not the only one, but one manifestation of what he calls agonistic constitutionalism. So in this paper, I probably would have gone into this in more detail, uh, to try to explain that my own view is that ideas of agonism in political theory and constitutionalism in political and legal theory are inconsistent. Uh, true constitutionalism, I think, involves a normative order based on principle, not just power. Um, and even in a relationship involving two or more different cultural groups or peoples, a kind of reconciliation is possible that provides for the kind of legal unity needed for peace and healthy relationships, or one could say the rule of law. Uh, so that's an ideal, and it doesn't exist in Canada at the moment, but it's an aspirational ideal that um, I would have liked to have worked through in a little more detail to see if it was at least theoretically possible. So I won't try to explain the answer to that question today. It's too tall an order, uh, and to be honest, I haven't figured it out yet. Um, so instead, I wanted to take a look at uh, some attempts to reconcile competing conceptions of territorial sovereignty through treaties in the past. Um, and, I, and I want to focus uh, on that treaty relationship known as the covenant chain. Um, so if you go into the law school here at Queen's, you'll see a beautiful display of art in the atrium. There are uh, uh, long uh, representations of wampum belts hanging in the atrium. Um, and as I told incoming law students in my welcoming speech the other day, uh, it's beautiful art, but it's more than that. It's law. Each of those wampum belts represents law. Uh, and as for those of you who don't know, wampum is uh, created um, by uh, carving beads out of certain kinds of shell, uh, and white and purple shells are then wo sorry, <clears throat> woven together, or were woven together uh, in the past in, in, to create quite elaborate belts with, with incredible designs on them. Um, and so uh, they're law. And one of those belts is, uh, is called the ever-growing tree belt. Uh, and it symbolizes the great tree of peace, as I understand it. And this symbolizes the Haudenosaunee Gorenikoa, or great law of peace. 
in effect, the constitution of the Iroquois Six Nations or Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Other belts in, on that display include treaty belts. Uh, so the famous two-row belt, this two-row wampum belt is, is depicted. There's also a belt with a simple line connecting two rectangles, which represent nations or council fires. Uh, and that one is known variously as the friendship belt, uh, the road belt sometimes, or the chain belt. And it's one representation of the covenant chain treaty relationship, and there are others. Um, so one way to ask how indigenous and non-indigenous conceptions of law, territory, and sovereignty can be reconciled is to ask what is the relationship between the ever-growing tree belt and the friendship or chain belt. Um, and I think there is a, an important relationship, which is another way of saying indigenous legal traditions shape the treaty relationship. Um, so, uh, very quickly, conceptions of territory and sovereignty in the English common law tradition, which is the dominant Orthodox Canadian uh, legal tradition, is a curious combination of property law and constitutional law wrapped up in a medieval package. Um, so the crown, or king, or queen, owns all the land. Uh, the king is Lord Paramount, sort of a super landlord. Uh, and this is true, if you own land in Ontario today, you don't actually own the land. You own an estate, in fee simple, that is held from the crown. And the crown still has the ultimate um, uh, ownership as a seigneurial lord, in effect, uh, to the land. And so that, um, that conception of ownership by crown and land obviously translate, translates into a theory of sovereignty as well. The crown is sovereign over that land, in part because the crown owns it all. And all we get are little bits and pieces of estates held from the crown. It's uh, totally futile in its origins, and why, in theory, it is still the law in places like Ontario is quite bizarre. Um, so in the famous Supreme Court of Canada decision in Sparrow in 1990, which has been referred to uh, today in various presentations um, on Aboriginal rights, the judges said that while the Crown respected the right of Aboriginal peoples to occupy their traditional lands, quote, there was from the outset never any doubt sovereignty and legislative power and indeed underlying title to such lands vested in the Crown. So it just uh, follows through from a common law mentality that, of course, the, the how could the crown not own all the land? Um, they say there was never any doubt. Well, I think there was a lot of doubt, in fact. Um, and, uh, and, and once I compare to the Covenant Chain Treaty relationship, that doubt is patent, I think. Um, now, now back to indigenous conceptions of uh, law, land, and <coughs> sovereignty. Um, so here I'm venturing into uh, a territory where I really am not authorized to venture. I'm a non-Indigenous person who struggled for many years to try to develop a sense of how various Indigenous people approach these issues. Um, in law schools, there's, a, there's an ongoing debate about who can speak about Indigenous legal traditions. 
especially in the uh, years following the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, which says we must be teaching indigenous legal traditions. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll say a few words. They will be fragmentary and superficial, and I, and I just will say in advance, I do it in all humility, knowing that, uh, that my comments are indeed fragmentary and superficial. My understanding of Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee approaches to law, territory, and sovereignty is that, um, um, that they are deeply, naturally connected to the water and the land around us, around you can look up there and see it. Um, and the origin stories that they both tell, which are similar to different versions of them, about a sky woman following falling to the sea and the the, the great turtle uh, on which she rests, forming the basis of the new land. The animal waters diving for the earth to make the land, and then the human beings uh, emerging on that land. Or in some Anishinaabe versions that I've heard, uh, it's a trickster figure, Nanabush, who's uh, caught in this deluge and grasps a log, or in some versions, even a canoe. Uh, and then the water animals die for the earth and bring back uh, the earth upon which the, the land is then forms and human beings emerge. Why, what do I see that is fascinating in these stories is, and I, I, I can't help but contrast it then to the biblical story of the ark, Noah, and the animals, um, is the incredible difference the animals are not passive uh, uh, animals in need of help, as they are in the biblical story. They're active, and they are forming, um, actively forming, not just a world, but a normative universe as well. And there's a lot of references to the councils that the animals held, and the councils indeed of the spirits in the water uh, and, and in the sky above. Um, and what strikes me as most interesting about this is that human law emerges within an existing network, very dynamic network of, this is just what strikes me as fascinating, of different normative domains. And what makes it possible to have human law is the reconciliation with those different shifting dynamic normative domains, uh, animal, spirit, earth, air, water. Um, and so, uh, as I understand, uh, governance for peoples in the Great Lakes region, Haudenosaunee, uh, Anishinaabe, um, legal order is a matter of seeking harmony between this complex series of shifting normative domains or spheres, families, clans, villages, nations, confederacies of nations, all represent overlapping and interconnecting jurisdictional spheres within and between which normative meaning evolves through constant discourse and performance of duties of care through gift exchanges that ensure spiritual kinship. Uh, and these shifting normative domains had to be integrated with the within a dynamic physical environment infused with spiritual life with its own shifting normative spheres um, and uh, again, the gift giving was a, an important part. The ceremony was an important, an important part of this. 
uh, and come back to the, the, the idea of the, the, the flood, the, the, the canoe image in particular, I find striking. Um, the canoe on the river features prominently in oral traditions concerning the covenant chain uh, and other uh, crown indigenous treaty relationships. And in one sense, the canoe is a metaphor for a jurisdiction, jurisdictional space. I, back to Margaret's point, can you have one person exercising a jurisdiction? Maybe, I, maybe you can. I think the canoeer is a jurisdictional space navigating through a complex um, series of, uh, of, of competing, but ultimately, ideally, harmonious jurisdictional spaces. It's, um, it, it, this, it, it's a kind of vision of sovereignty that is totally different from the one I just described earlier about uh, the European crown, in which sovereignty is monolithic, plenary, absolute, uh, and undivided. Um, so um, I, I'll just say that one thing that strikes me about reading the treaty, the records of treaty council exchanges where the covenant chain was reaffirmed, and there are thousands of them, they stretch from the 17th century all the way through to the 19th century, is um, in these treaty records there is almost invariably a ceremony that is conducted at the beginning, the ceremony of condolence. And um, as it happens, the turning point, as I understand it, in the epic narrative that tells of the founding of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the great law of peace, is when the peacemaker discovers the power of wampum and the importance that wampum plays in condoling a grieving mind. And singing a song of peace, the condoler, in this case the peacemaker, condoles Hiawatha, the, uh, the, the grieving chief, uh, by wiping the tears from his eyes so that he can see, unblocking his ears so that he can hear again. And clearing away his constricted throat so that he can speak. And upon doing that, there's one version of the great law of peace uh, that says, um, the peacemaker says, now, now that your mind is cleared, you being competent to judge, we can now make our laws. Um, that's the same ceremony that's conducted at the beginning of the treaty council sessions that were held to affirm the covenant chain. Uh, I, I can read examples to you. I won't, because I'm running out of time. I have zero minutes. <laughs> if that is the law that shapes the relationship, then the sovereignty of the crown is totally reconfigured, and, and the crown becomes something other than a sovereign and becomes something like um, a relationship, of inner relationship, of spiritual kinship with the uh, indigenous parties. Thank you. Thank you. Miigwech, and thank you for listening to Episode 6, Interacting with the State, Part 2. This episode concludes our six-part series resulting from the panel discussions at the Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation Workshop held at Queen's University in September 2019. We encourage you to visit our website at www.queensu.ca forward slash CSDD forward slash land rights for more information on engaging with the project and its future outputs. 
Before we return to the words of Ganoshuni Janice Hill to close our journey, on behalf of the organizing team, I want to thank you for listening to our series. I hope that you have enjoyed these engaging discussions, which we were so fortunate to be able to share. Kinanaskomatin, miawa, miigwech. So in the beginning of our gathering together, I shared many words with you, both in my language and in English, and the purpose, as I said yesterday, of those words was to bring our minds together so that we were focused on the reason that we've gathered here and that I invited you to leave any challenges um, you had at the door and that you were welcome to pick them up on your way out if you chose. Um, that's part of our tradition. The other part of our tradition is that because I opened the event and brought our minds together, now that we're coming to the end of the event and you're all going to be going off in your own direction, it, I need to take our minds apart from each other so that you're not stuck in this room or in this conference just thinking about all of us and all that you heard so that you can have a clear mind when you travel home so that you travel home safely and that when you get home you'll find your loved ones at peace and in good health and that you'll have good travels on your way to them so i won't do the long version that i did yesterday i'll just do a short version and just for your information for our gifted speakers of the language the short, the, what I said yesterday was a short version. I've heard our gifted speakers do the Ohandugari Wadekwa, and it can take anywhere from an hour and a half to three hours. So it depends on the amount of detail that they address when they're saying the words and the gift of their oratory. So, Kunjokwa, Sawadamu Sio, Skani Gariwasa, Dechirwanu Horado, Nesungwaya Deson. Newahi Rosa Anyo, Negari, Neohandugari Wadeka, Gua, Ungwawana Headstu. Ona Sawadumusio, Skunjoka, Ne Egadi, Ohandugari Wadekwa, Ungadi, Wanungo De. Aguego Unska, Andiwa Wait Nuni, Ne Ungwa Nigura, Dano Dea Tinuarado, Ne Aguego Yunki Yenawase, Gio Unjade. Aguego Unska, Andiwa Wait Nuni, Ne Ungwa Nigura, Dano Dea Tinuarado, Ne Aguego Yunki Yenawase, Jeet Karunyade. Dono Onagadi, Aguego de Chiduanu Horado, Ne Sungwa Adison. Ona Wedewari, Munhodu, Nua Wuni Sarade, Egadi, Nii, Dunhak, Ne Ungwa Nigura, To Nilwanake. So what I said was, I gathered all of our minds together again so that we can finish the business that has come to pass. And we also always give our greetings and thanks to all the things on the earth. And we offer our greetings and thanks to all the things in this, above the earth, in the sky, and in the heavens. And finally, we offered our greetings and thanks to Sungwaya Song, the creator of all things. <laughs> the Indigenous Land Rights and Reconciliation Project is funded by the Government of Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council and Forskningsgradet, the Research Council of Norway. We would also like to thank the Department of Political Studies and the Centre for the Study of Democracy and Diversity at Queen's University and Globalizing Minority Rights at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, for their sponsorship and organizational support. 
Special thank you to CFRC Kingston for their assistance in coordinating this podcast and to traditional artist Patty Kusterock. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences. 